You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. Hello, this is Dr. Carrie Bedian at the Fertility Center of Las Vegas, and I am here for our next episode of Fertility Docs Uncensored, joined by my two lovely colleagues, Dr. Susan Hudson from Texas Fertility Center. Hello. And Dr. Abby Eblen from Nashville Fertility Center. Hi, everybody. Great to, great to be with you today. <laughs> so we were just chatting about what what things that you kind of take for granted that are now different in a post-COVID kind of world? So Abby, you said you've got a trip coming up this summer. Where are you going and what are you doing? Kind of a bittersweet trip. My, my IVF baby boy is now a high school graduate and he is going to be going to school in New York State. Makes me worry a little bit. But the school has been really good about sending us information about what they're going to do to try and make sure there's not an outbreak and what they're going to do if there is an outbreak. And so I was just telling Carrie and Susan, one of the funny things that I found out from the college was not only are they measuring how far the desk can be apart, but they also just happened to throw in there that they're going to be monitoring the wastewater from the dorms <laughs> to make sure there's an outbreak of COVID-19. And so that just, I think that's great that they're doing that. That's probably a really early way to figure out if somebody's infected in the dorm, but I just visualizing that just kind of. I don't know. It's just a bad visual, I think. <laughs> I try to imagine somehow testing wastewater from individual dorms because it's not going to be somewhere it collectively goes because you'd never be able to pinpoint. What I guess, I mean, that's all they said, but I'm guessing, you know, my mind went many different directions with that. And I thought, well, maybe they're going to, maybe there's one sewage place that it goes per dorm. And if they detect there's something going on with maybe a PCR test and the, I think it's actually the stool that they would have to test then they would know to start looking in the dorm and making sure, you know, doing temperature checks and, and probably would actually test all the kids because all the kids are going to have to be tested before they start college. So, but I think Carrie might have an unusual insight into this because... <laughs> so lo these many years ago, when I was a college student, I worked as a lab tech at a wastewater treatment plant. So how exactly do you get involved as a lab tech at a wastewater treatment plant? Like, like wait, when you're like, hey, I need a job. This sounds like a good idea. You mean everybody doesn't just go down to their local wastewater treatment plant and say, hey, I need a job? Not, not in my top 10. So I was looking for labs and I knew that I wanted to go home for the summer. And so left St. Louis, came back to the Phoenix area and wanted to, a lot of the research that I did when I was in high school was in the Colorado River Project. So there's a coalition of seven states right around Arizona that depend on Colorado River water. So I'm like, oh, well, let me see if I can get back involved and actually have somebody pay me for doing some of this stuff. <laughs> and so I emailed the city of Phoenix and there were no lab jobs available except at the wastewater treatment plant. So I'm like, what the hell? So did a phone interview and, because this was well before yeah, the days. Of, immediately, right? <laughs> Uh, yeah, needless to say, there were no other applicants for that job. <laughs> but I got really used to it. Like they would bring in the samples and some of them were as gross as you would imagine. And and I would be in charge of setting up, we would do between 15, 20 samples at a time. And there are these big like gallon jugs of stuff. So what, and, are, what are you looking for? This was water from the river or? No, this was, this was a wastewater treatment plant. I mean, it was water from... 
from where you would expect. What were you looking for? What were you, why were you analyzing it? So we were looking for any sort of pollution, um, various heavy metals, those types of things, just to see kind of what was in the general water supply to make sure that there was there was nothing going on. And I, I had kind of a side research project. There, was, there are wetlands in Phoenix, of all things, and we were looking to see if there was heavy metal accumulation in the fish. And so I, I literally set up a blender and ground fish to sample them. Yeah. But for the wastewater treatment plant, they would the teams would go out and they would sample from various places and then we would make sure that there were no no heavy metals, no anything that was really concerning in the water supply. I have to share this because like this would never come up in any other time. One of the few field trips that I remember as a child, we actually went to a wastewater treatment plant. Why you would choose that for a field trip, I'm not exactly sure. However, so I remember standing around like this big circle thing where they had like the water and they were Mm -hmm. doing whatever they do to it. And the only thing I remember was them explaining that the water, because of the treatment, it has no buoyancy. And they explained to us that what that means is if you ended up in said water, you would go straight to the bottom because it is it is physically impossible to float. This like traumatized me as a child. (laughs) And so I'm serious. Even to this day, every time I drive past like a water treatment facility, I have like this little moment. (laughs) Like it terrified me. And why I remember that like one statement, but you know, it's me. Well, this wasn't really planned, but kind of what we're talking about kind of... (laughs) (laughs) leads right into what we were about to talk about (laughs) so the the eventual goal of this episode is to talk about (laughs) embarrassing questions and IVF and really what better way to start off than by talking about wastewater treatment plants but but we will take a slight detour before we get back to uh, the embarrassing questions and this this set of embarrassing questions focuses more on sperm because what else is more embarrassing than sperm? Too many people to talk about, fertility docs notwithstanding. But Susan, what's our question of the week? Our question of the week is, at what point should I consider other options when things aren't working with fertility treatments like IVF? So we assume that this question was from someone who maybe has done IVF and was not successful and kind of is trying to decide, should I do more fertility treatments or should I think about other options like adoption or things like that? Is that kind of how you guys interpret it? Yeah, I think that's reasonable. I think so. So the way that I would approach that would be really have a a frank discussion with your doc and go through all of the options. Everything from from a simple Clomid timed intercourse cycle to an IUI to IVF to donor IVF to uh, donor egg or donor sperm to a gestational carrier to... um, to considering adding in genetic testing, like all of those types of things, because because it is helpful to really go through absolutely everything and say, have we considered everything? And and it's really a conversation with the doc. What do you what do you ladies think? I think it's a very individual situation because there are some people who they've gone through an IVF cycle, and what I consider it is. IVF, a good percentage of it is a numbers game. And there's some things that we can 
do to improve that numbers game by just doing another cycle. You know, there's people I sit down and I'll talk to and I'm like, you know, we did this right. I would change this. I would tweak this, but I think it's worth giving it another try. Um, on the counter side, there are definitely some couples that I sit down with and I'm like, you know, we did this. And even if we did things differently, did the same, we are probably not going to end up having a different conversation if we do this again. And then talking about, you know, some of those options you talked about, Carrie, and this is really a, a time that I think patients need to do a lot of kind of introspection because kind of my philosophy about it is if you want a baby, there are very few people that I cannot help. You may not choose to do the things that you need to achieve pregnancy, and that's okay. Everybody has their own boundaries, their their own perception of what what they feel they can do or what they want to do. And that's a that's a very, very personal decision. But you really have to start having some of those thoughts about, you know, is donor egg or donor sperm or gestational carriers or donor embryo? Are any of those within the realm of things that I might consider to be a possibility? And if it's not, that is that is completely okay. Everybody needs to make that personal decision. But that's that that's really the things you have to think about is if my doctor starts talking to me about these things, do I want to get more information about it? Number one, because I, I always feel like there's power in information. There may be things you have or have not thought about one way or the other regarding one of these options, but it's such a personal decision, but it definitely, you, you got to have that conversation with your doc. Yeah, I think with a lot of patients too, the break point comes for them when perhaps they've done the most aggressive therapy, which I think we probably all agree is IVF. And they either don't stimulate well and they get canceled because of that, or they don't have good embryos or they don't have any genetically normal embryos. I think for a lot of people, that's the break point. And I think kind of what you were alluding to, Susan, that's the point where you've got to do some soul searching and decide, you know, is it important for me to have a baby, uh, only have a baby that's biologically my own, or is it okay for me? Or could I love a baby that's from a, you know, another couple, a donor embryo, or could I love an embryo that was created from my husband's sperm, but from a donor egg. And I think that's the point where a lot of times people really have to think about it. And, and you know, I find that sometimes maybe somebody doesn't have a good outcome with IVF and, you know, understandably, they're really sad and I don't see them for a while. And then a year or two may go by and then they come back and they're like, you know, I've really thought more about this and maybe this is something that I want to do. And so I think it is important to seek out information because, I agree. Knowledge is power. And the more information you know, the more you can understand what your options are. Yeah, I would I would agree with all of those. So, all right. Next set of questions, all focus on sperm. And when I am giving my sex ed talk to the fifth graders at one of the local schools, I always make them say words like vagina, penis, sperm, ovary, uterus, again and again and again, so that we get the giggles out. So I don't really need to do that with the two of you guys. But I think we already got our giggles out today already. <laughs> I don't know that we got them all out. I think there's some more coming. There, there's probably some more. Even, even we giggle about stuff like this sometimes. <laughs> First question, is it better to abstain for long periods of time to get a good specimen? Part of it is the definition of long period of time. <laughs> so generally, 
the recommendations are to not abstain for more than five to seven days because what happens is the sperm that are sitting there, they start to degrade and then they start sending off the degrading ones, send off chemicals that actually hurt the good sperm. So you, there, there's limits to quote, like storing it up. And, and so, you know, the general rule is around 48 hours, but somewhere in that 48 to, you know, five days standpoint is probably where you need to be, in my opinion. Yeah, that's exactly what we say, two to five days. And I think it depends a little bit too, if, if, you know, if your husband has sort of a borderline low sperm count, that may be more critical. But, you know, if your husband has a good count, chances are, you know, if it's one day or six days, it's probably not going to be that big of a deal. But two to five is really optimal, I think, in terms of motility and, and count. So next question, is it okay to get a sperm specimen with oral sex? I appreciate the effort and uh, <laughs> team attitude of this couple. Right. You got to do what you got to do. Well, actually, I think it's probably not a good idea, though, because the thing we worry about with that is when you get saliva from, you know, oral sex, we worry that that's going to get in the specimen. And ultimately, when we take that sperm and we separate the seminal plasma from the sperm cells, just the concern is that some of that bacteria may get into the specimen that goes in the uterus and in the uterus, there's no germs there. And so if those germs get into the uterus, that could cause a, a uterine infection. So that probably is a no. I would agree with that. And one thing that our patients should understand is when, if you're going to have an IUI or an insemination, that what your partner ejaculates is not directly what we put inside of you. If we took everything he ejaculated and put that inside the uterus, there, there are hormones in his ejaculate that would make your uterus really contract and you wouldn't like us anymore. And so <laughs> essentially that, that other stuff other than the sperm is separated. The sperm is actually in a small amount of media and that's actually the fluid that's put inside the uterus. So we're really trying to put basically just the sperm cells up inside the uterine cavity and get rid of all the other stuff that's in the ejaculate. Exactly. It is prohibited in my culture for a male to masturbate. Is there another way to collect a specimen? What do you think? So we have condoms and they're special condoms that you have to get from our office that basically are condoms that it's, it's okay to collect in. They don't have lubricant in them. And so while you're having the active intercourse, you know, when, when your husband ejaculates, he ejaculates into that condom. And then essentially you would take that condom and put in a sterile container and bring it into the office at that point. So this one, um, the next couple kind of all all travel together and the partner has a difficult time collecting via masturbation. And is there another way to get it? Can the couple have intercourse in order to collect the sperm sample before they go to a, an egg retrieval, before they go to an insemination, before they go to even just a diagnostic test to take a look at the sperm? And a lot of times for that, again, if you have special collection condom, that can be helpful. But sometimes it's just the locale of where the, the specimen is collected, you know, especially in the, the post-COVID kind of world. A lot of us are having patients collect at home and bring their samples in. And it's a lot more comfortable to do that because guys are in their own elements. They're not in a foreign room listening to somebody getting checked in down the hall for some other procedure. And so it's a little bit more comfortable. Now, you have to be careful when you bring that specimen in. Like, 
don't put it on ice because you'll kill all the sperm. Don't put it in right next to your hot coffee. You'll kill all the sperm. Keep it more at, at body temperature. But there are some ways to get around that. I tell guys too that, you know, sometimes I think if they have to collect at a certain time and, you know, sometimes they can get really stressed and it's really hard for them to be able to collect. And so I think if they have backup sperm that they just have in the office, we have it frozen. If they can't collect, we can always thaw that and use it. And I find a lot of times if they know that backup specimen's there, they don't have a problem collecting it. You can use their specimen. So I think that's another way to think about it as well. I think one thing also for our patients to, or our female patients to keep in mind are, are that sometimes guys actually really do have an opinion. <laughs> and, <laughs> really? and that's kind of, that's kind of hard when we're doing fertility therapy, we kind of get into our own heads, but really asking your partner whether he prefers to collect at the office or at home. I think is, is, is very important because sometimes they really do. I mean, maybe there's, they don't want to collect at home because I have some guys who are like, absolutely without a doubt. And, you know, if you're collecting at home and having to transport it, we always have to think about the issues of, of time. Okay. Between the time of collection and the time that it gets there needs to be really within an hour. And, I know some of us have patients who drive from two, three hours away at, at times. And, you know, even though it's a collection room and maybe not the most romantic place on the planet, it, it's better than not being able to do that. The main thing that we ask is that our patients do not collect in the parking lot in their cars <laughs> because that sets up, and we're in Vegas, so we're particularly sensitive to this, that sets up a bad precedent. So, no, you cannot collect in your car and no, our staff members will not help you. Oh. <laughs> wow. It, I guess you are in Vegas, huh? <laughs> Questions and answers born from experience. Well, I have to say, I have to say, I, I've never had somebody ask for assistance. However, I have known of partners who have admitted to collecting in the parking lot. Yeah, we just ask that they don't tell us and that they don't get arrested <laughs> and that they don't make it obvious that's what they're doing. If they can get away with it, fine. But uh, I don't want the police presence in our parking lot uh, arresting anyone for indecent exposure before coming in for their fertility treatment. The only time I've ever, I ever think anything explicit happened in our parking lot is, I'm sure you guys always get the question when somebody's pregnant, well, when can I have sex? And I think it's different for different practices. And so, um, you know, typically I'll say, well, you know, I'll tell them if they're, you know, their second ultrasound's good. I'll say, okay, I think you, you know, it's, you can do that right now. And then, but I always say, but just not right now. <laughs> don't do it in the parking lot. <laughs> Carrie, you're laughing. You look like, you sound like you have something to say. <laughs> I was fully, I mean, I was going back to the days of residency where we would have patients who were in the hospital for prolonged periods of times. And every so often you would walk into a room too early uh, and, and find a couple engaged. And, uh, and I was just, I was expecting you to say, yeah, we told them as soon as they were done with their second ultrasound, they could do it. And you leave the room and then. <laughs> <laughs> no, I haven't had that experience yet, but you know, maybe one of these days. Fortunately, neither have I, but, uh, and we hopefully digress from the initial question. I think what's, what's our next question. So the next question is, uh, can we use lubricant for specimen collection? So the general answer would be, again, no. There, there are special lubricants that you can potentially get through your lab that don't 
interfere with sperm function. But if possible, it's best not to have the lubricant because again, that's something else that ends up needing to be separated out in the specimen. But lubricant for sex, do you guys get that question too? Is it okay to use lubricant for sex if you're trying to get pregnant? Mm -hmm. Yeah, there are a couple that are more predisposed to not killing the sperm. And so we lean more towards recommending those when you're having sex with the intent to get pregnant. Which ones do you recommend, Carrie? We usually say pre-seed. That's the one. Canola oil also works and doesn't interfere with sperm function. I was just going to say vegetable oil from your pantry works just fine too. Yeah. Yeah. Don't put it back in your pantry. Just get a little travel container. (laughs) And then once once you are pregnant, it should not make a difference whether you are or are not using lubricant. So, all right. And then the last question is, if I think I may have a problem collecting the specimen, who do I tell and when? It seems like this question is more directed towards before an IUI or before an IVF retrieval. So I would say tell your doctor as soon as you know that you think you might have a problem. Because just like Carrie mentioned a little bit ago, one of the best things to do, I think it was Carrie, no, no, it was Abby, is to be able to collect a specimen that can be cryopreserved that we can use for backup. It's very effective, especially if you have a pretty darn good um, sperm count to begin with. And just kind of taking that pressure off can help. I have also, I'm not, I'm personally not a big fan of double IUIs in most situations. I think a single well-timed IUI in most situations works well. However, especially with some of my patients who are like paraplegics and things like that, that doing a double IUI where one or the other collection is going to get us covered and that way we're okay no matter what has, has worked out very well as for me. We have a special brew that my partner came up with. It's a combination of Valium and Viagra together. One pill of Valium and one pill, pill of Viagra and it works pretty well usually. Very good. How early do you have them take it? Like how, how much before they need to collect do you have them take um, it? Not, not very far in advance. I mean, they usually take it, take it when, they, when they come from home. I mean, they have to have their wife or somebody, or wife or somebody bring them, but um, they just do Somebody it. to drive so they're not driving on Valium. All right, exactly. So um, they take it before they leave home and then they come in and collect. Huh. Pretty well, usually. <laughs> I'll remember that one. I'll definitely yeah. remember that one. All right. So that concludes our first episode of Embarrassing Questions. I think we have many more of these particular brands of episodes coming, but we are very glad to have had everyone join us today. To our audience, thank you so much for listening. Be sure to tune in next week for more and be sure to subscribe and leave us a review in iTunes. We'd love to hear from you. You can also visit us at fertilitydocsuncensored.com to schedule an appointment with any of us or You can submit specific questions like the ones we talked about today. Um, And as you can see, the more embarrassing, the better. So be sure and um, leave some for us so we'll have fodder to talk about later on. (laughs) We, We loved being here today and talking with all of you. And we'll be back soon. Take care, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.